Hello, I'm Mariette Sneijman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today we're looking at different types of anxiety, recognizing them and finding relief. My guest is Dr. Kalinda Linda, clinical psychologist, CBT specialist, author and speaker from Johannesburg. Welcome, Kalinda. I'm so excited to be part of this. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, after our conversation, Kalinda will give us her three best tips for any anxiety, and then it will be fun question time. Kalinda, I met you many years ago, but it's always been clear to me that your heart is in your work. Please tell us about your journey into and through psychology. Okay, so from the age of 11, when we had a career assessment discussion in an English class, I think it was, I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I was one of those geeky kids who read everything, and when I'd finished at the public library, I started on the encyclopedias. So I suppose it was always going to happen that I got into research or on the mind. So clinical psychology it was. And so long story short, I did my undergrad at WITS in the 80s, and it was fascinating learning about Freud. But I must say, after three years, I was Freuded out. And fortunately <laughs> for me, a friend of my mom's um, at that time was Prof. Eddie Wolf, who was head of department at Rao in those days, now UJ. I actually and, studied under him, a uh, oh, pre-graduate. So you know him, yes. yes. And, and I'm so thankful to him. So if Eddie's listening, shout out to you. He and my mom had a conversation, and this was then brought to me. And um, Eddie said, you know, she likes the brain. Wouldn't she be interested in CBT? And I'd never heard of this. We didn't have Google or the Internet or anything, really. You know, we hardly had television in those days. And um, I had a meeting with him, and he told me all about it, and I was sold. So off I went, jumped ship, and I did my honours, master's, and doctorate at Rao, or UJ. And we, we did a systemic, interpersonal, quite an integrative master's, but I had a year's extra training in the CBT with Eddie. Please just say what CBT stands yes, for. Yes, I, I always forget that because people who are listening won't know. For me, it's just a, a normal word, part of my reality. So CBT is cognitive behavior therapy, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit later in the context of anxiety. But it's a very particular form of therapy, which is based in research, the therapeutic relationship is different, and it's very quick. It's also much more light. You know, you don't leave feeling absolutely exhausted and in a bad mood at the end of the session. So I'll talk much more about it later. But that, that's basically how it bit, the bug bit from little, then the CBT bug bit. And I'm pleased to say I've been trained in all the modalities of therapy, but it's my 29th year of practice, and CBT is still absolutely my go-to. And um, yeah, I've done a few congresses in the States, been very privileged to meet Aaron Beck, who passed away recently at the age of 100, and David Barlow, who's one of the fathers of CBT. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful life. Um, and of late, I'd say probably the last 10 years, I've also brought in mindfulness, because I meditate for sanity purposes. Mm -hmm. I read, I meditate, and I run. And um, mindfulness meditation, it's a very generic kind of meditation, is unbelievably good with CBT. 
You can use it with sleep, with stress, with anxiety, with depression. So it's wonderful to just add a little bit more. And there's a brand new form of CBT called the Unified Protocol, which is also being used where they're doing much more work on the emotion regulation and how do you tolerate intense feelings. So I could go on about this for mm. the whole hour, but mm. I'll pause over there. <laughs> we'll get there again. And you're also um, involved with SADAC, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group that I respect with all my heart. You know, advocacy is a big thing for me. And SADAC was started almost 30 years ago. It was started by Zane Wilson, who was a very high-powered businesswoman, and she just developed these panic attacks out of nowhere. Now, nobody knew what CBT was, or let alone panic, in this country at that time. And they had an idea of it in the U.S., probably, but it, it wasn't really that well-known. And when she then she did get diagnosed after many years and got the right treatment, she, she just... I just love this. She didn't have children, so she decided to have one in the form of SADAG. Mm -hmm. And she created this. She got a whole bunch of us, myself, some psychiatrists, pharmaceutical companies to sponsor. They could do that in those days. And it started from her dining room table in her house. And now it's massive. It's got 32 lines. I don't know how many support groups, probably close on a 1,000 and um, advocacy is close to my heart, which is why I've been on the board for all these years. And I will always be involved in SADAG in some shape or form because of that. Mm. Now we're coming to anxiety. And this is something I think which many listeners will be familiar with. How would you describe anxiety? You know, anxiety is one of my favorite things to work with. And people who have it might be thinking, this woman's lost the plot. But why I say that is because it's so common and it doesn't always have to be pathological. Sometimes you just need to turn it down a notch. So if we had to think of, of maybe a short definition of, of anxiety, it's when, when your worry or when your fight or flight is too much for the situation. So if we look at a bigger picture for a moment, all emotions are there for a purpose. You know, when someone hurts you, you should feel sad or angry. Or if somebody violates your boundary, you should be angry. Now, if there's a threat, you should feel anxious because otherwise none of us would have survived to adulthood. We'd all be running in parking lots and, you know, eating things we shouldn't. So um, anxiety that is functional is when you have a situation where there's a clear threat of some sort. It's not always life-threatening. It might be a presentation at work and you should probably prepare for that or an exam. My twins have just done the trick, so we had an appropriate level of anxiety in my house. <laughs> and then it's, it's good. It galvanizes you. You can see there's the threat I need to prepare. But when it becomes a problem, shall we say an anxiety disorder or more a clinical level of anxiety, it's when you're too worried, um, when you, you're panicking when you don't need to. Um, and we'll unpack those as we go. But it's always a matter of intensity and of degree that it's too big as a reaction for what's actually going on. And sometimes there's no threat at all, and you're just seeing spooks. And again, that sounds a bit judgmental. I don't mean it like that. But anxiety is where you assume the worst, mm -hmm. and you're looking for the worst case. Mm -hmm. And often people will say, when they've got anxiety, they'll say, you know, I'm the one who worries when there's nothing to worry about. So you can see that it's mm -hmm. really just a matter of proportion. And then the other part is that it impacts on your life. So it impacts on your functioning in your work or your studies. 
um, your interpersonal relationships, and then your health as well. Thank you. That clarifies it completely. When does one need help for anxiety-related issues? I think it's to do with the impact. You know, one, one word is impact and the other word is quality, as in of life or functioning. So when the impact is such that anxiety is almost a, a barrier between you and the world, so you wake up into anxiety, you see the world through the lens of anxiety, um, it, it's just prevalent all the time, then definitely it's not worth living, a lot of people say to me, and I understand that. You know, that, then that leads me to the quality. So you, you really can't function in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work, you know, you get an email which is just a, a little questioning mail, could you clarify? And then you have a massive panic reaction. Or you need to present something and you have a huge panic attack. Or you wake into worry and you worry about everybody and everything. You know, as I'm saying that, I think you can hear, you're just not having a life. Mm -hmm. So impact and quality, when those two are there and they're impaired, then please, please, please do seek help. Which are the different types of anxiety? Okay, there are a lot of types. So I'm going to maybe mention just the main ones. There's generalized anxiety, and that's the most common. So 3 to 8% of people have generalized anxiety. And you can think of it as something, it, it's an early onset, and it's almost like a curve that it waxes and wanes, but it's chronic, it never really goes away. So we try and just drop it a notch. And the, the two key families of symptoms are in worry, or the, the cognitive symptoms, of which worry is the main one, your thoughts, cognitions, and then the other basket is your physiological or your body symptoms. So on the cognitive side, and everybody who's listening knows somebody, or maybe you're that person, because 3 to 8%, it's a lot of people. So on the cognitive side, you're always worrying. So you have this vicious cycle of worry, and you worry about a range of things. Sometimes it's your health, sometimes it's your loved ones, sometimes it's the, the world, sometimes it's money, and all of that can happen through a day. So it's constantly shifting. In addition to that, you're always looking for the worst case. So there is always a worst case in any situation, but you almost are blinkered to look in just on the worst case. And you can't see any of the others at all. So you also assume the worst. Um, so say, for example, well, the example I always give my clients is if you go back to when I was at school, if you were called to the, the headmaster's office, you would immediately assume I'm going to be expelled. You know, so you would always look for the worst case. So anything ambiguous, you might be called to say you're getting an award. You might be called to say, please take this letter to your mother. You know, we didn't have the internet then where you could send it. But if you have generalized anxiety, you will think, oh no, that's it, I'm going to be expelled, even when there's no reason. So people are going through their lives like this. So say, for example, you can't reach your loved one on the cell phone. They're either dead, or a lot of people in relationships, they're cheating, or you know something awful has happened. And of course, there is a tiny percentage of time when that is true, but there's a massive percentage of time when it is not. And this is the, the key feature around the cognitive side, your thoughts and your beliefs and the worry around generalized anxiety. And then on the other side, we've got the physiological symptoms. And again, I'm giving my age away. 
Um, I remember learning to drive and riding the clutch. And those of you who are listening will maybe understand what I'm saying. You're in this yellow alert. You're not really moving forward, but you know, you're kind of bracing all the time. I'm about to move. I'm about to move. So the physiological side is where you're bracing for the threat to come. And that's why you have all these aches and pains. So people who are listening, maybe just do that. Just tense yourself as if you're bracing for an impact and stay like that while you're listening. Now imagine if you did that 24-7. Oh, You'd no. have a sore neck, a sore back, mm. your tight jaw, and it feels like that. That's why you've got these funny aches and pains that travel through the body and um, trigeminal nerve problems in the jaw, stomach problems, headaches, that sort of thing. And you can see it comes from that brace, that yellow alert, where's the threat, where's the threat? So I think that, that pretty much describes the experience of generalized. And, you know, I did the maths. Um, I'm not very good at maths. So I did it on 7.4 billion people. I believe we're more now. So 3 to 8%. 3% of that number is 240 million. So as we're sitting here right now, a minimum of 240 million people on the planet are experiencing an episode of generalized anxiety right now. That's a lot of people. And that was the number before COVID. I'd say it's easily two to four times more now. So that's the big one. So generalized anxiety is the most common it's the one that presents most commonly in the doctor's office, in my office. And you can see with those numbers, it's very, very common. So the others, I'm just going to zip through those. Those are not as common, but they can also appear with the generalized anxiety. So let's do panic next. So panic can appear by itself, or it can appear with agoraphobia, or it can appear with some of the others, like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, or social anxiety disorder. So basically what a panic attack is, I need to explain how the first one happens, and then it'll be clear what it is. So if we could imagine, and this is a terrible analogy, but I have to use it, people won't forget it. If you're cooking a frog, or in South African's case, if you're cooking a crayfish, and I know that sounds so awful, you put it in water that's lukewarm, room temperature, and you slowly, slowly turn up the heat. And at some point, the poor creature dies. Now, with a panic attack, you, you need two factors. You need to have a genetic base for anxiety. All anxiety is genetically based. So you need a vulnerability. And then you need pressure. And the world provides that in large supply. So if you've got the genetics which make you vulnerable to anxiety and pressure of whatever kind is applied, sooner or later, you, your heat gets turned up, gets turned up, gets turned up of your nervous system. So imagine that your adrenaline is going up, 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 up. So if panic is at 10, you're slowly creeping up there, creeping up there. And one fine day, you're at 9.9 .9 out of 10 in terms of your adrenaline level. And something random, so there's no deep, dark anything that sets it off. It's completely random, like when you have an argument and there's a final straw. So it could be the extra coffee you had. It could be you stuck in traffic and you're going to be late. It could often, often it's after a big party and you hung over and your blood sugar drops and you don't have the coffee. So something physiological is involved. And what it does is that thing kicks you over into a 10. Now at 10, 
that think of an argument, a final straw just explodes into this enormous argument. Panic attack is the same. So you've been gradually going up, feeling uncomfortable, but you got used to it like the frog or the crayfish. Now suddenly that last thing boosts you and you get these new, frightening, unusual symptoms and you don't know why, which is more scary. So this is the first thing to know with panic. So your heart starts racing, you feel dizzy, you feel like you can't breathe, you're hot, you're cold, you start to shake, and there's absolutely no reason. So what are you going to think? So you have these physical symptoms out of nowhere. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to think, uh-oh, this is a threat, this is dangerous. When that happens, you're going to then release the real fight or flight threat, and then you're going to have a spurt of adrenaline, you're going to feel more symptoms, you're going to be thinking, uh-oh, you're going to release the next spurt of adrenaline, and it's a vicious cycle. And this cycle keeps going, and it can go on for hours. And what's terrifying is you don't know what caused it. So people often go to casualty, or they take a pill, or sometimes after a few hours they get distracted, or they go to sleep, and then this thing settles. But after that, we have what we call the fear of fear cycle, and then it becomes a disorder where you, you start to worry, well, what caused that? It must be the situation I was in or the activity I was doing. So then you start to avoid that because you're anticipating this awful feeling could come back. And when that happens, you get the agoraphobia where you can't be away from safety. And that's actually what it is. You don't want to be away from home in case this awful thing happens. Or for some people, they don't want to be far from a hospital in case this awful thing happens. And your world starts to shrink and shrink and shrink. And eventually, say this happened when you were driving, and maybe it was on a big road. Now you avoid highways and big roads, but all of them, even though the other roads weren't where you had the panic attack. Or if it happened in a shop, you avoid crowds, you avoid church, you avoid any place, a party, um, a gathering at some family. You know, you, you avoid anything that could possibly make that awful thing come back. So panic is about 20% of people, but it's not chronic like generalized anxiety. Um, it tends to, to more be specific to situations. And then it can happen with social phobia, social anxiety, when you have to do a presentation or something. And it can happen with OCD. For example, if you can't do your compulsion, you know, you need to wash your hands and you can't, then you could also have a panic attack. So panic is an interesting animal. But it also is unbelievably responsive to CBT, which we'll get to later. Yes. yes. So as you can hear, these are my two favorite things in the world, yes. generalized and panic. Yeah, I think I understand anxiety well for the first time now and see how they are related, mm. the different mm. They definitely panic. are. Great. So there are a couple more. I'll just mention them briefly. So <laughs> social anxiety disorder is also called social phobia. And it's not a fear of people. So let me clear that up. So often we think it's people who are shy. That's not the case. So if we go to the introversion-extroversion continuum, your extrovert, you will know who you are if you're listening. You bounce into a room, even if you don't know anybody, and you're chatty, and your brain is dopamine-based, so you can engage, and you love it. Where an introvert, the brain uses long acetylcholine pathways, and the introvert needs time to warm up. And when the introvert is warmed up, the introvert can be as noisy as the extrovert until they've had enough. 
then they lack a battery, they need to go away and charge. So shyness is attached to the introvert label. Now social anxiety is a completely different animal. And this is brain-based, very much like all the other anxieties. The average age of onset is six, which tells me if that's the average age, some people have it from birth. And some people it only tends to switch on at puberty. And there are two kinds of social anxiety. Before I get there, the key, key distinction is that social anxiety is an excruciating fear of being observed while you're performing. So that could be walking into a room where people already are seated. It could be eating or drinking in front of others. It could be speaking up in front of others. It could be doing a presentation in front of others. If the whole room were in darkness, then it tends not to manifest. Or if everybody were blindfolded and they couldn't see you. So it is not being shy. Um, not at all. It is basically a, an excruciating fear that people are watching me and evaluating me when I'm performing any task. And so that's the key distinction. It's, it's not about the social aspect so much. Um, and then the other thing that's important to know is with social anxiety, the inner critic that sits in the frontal lobes is at play. So all of us are a little bit self-conscious when we're doing something new or performing but um, the inner critic is maybe just moderate. With somebody with social anxiety, there's a lot of research that shows the frontal lobes are bigger. So the frontal lobes are your executive functioning, a lot of your personality, spirituality, a lot of that sits in the frontal lobes. Amazing stuff to have there, but unfortunately also the inner critic. So a lot of studies have shown that actually, that with people when they have social anxiety, their frontal lobes are bigger. And as an aside, people who are antisocial personalities, you might know them as the psychopaths or sociopaths, they've got tiny frontal lobes. So um, it's just interesting mm -hmm. that the inner critic is double in social anxiety and absent in sociopaths. But that's as an aside, just something interesting. And then just under social anxiety, you can have specific or general. So specific, even if you're the biggest extrovert, have wonderful social skills, you can also have social anxiety, believe it or not, and it'll always be around presentations. And I've seen that before when I've done groups for social anxiety. The person's chatty, they're the life and soul of the room, until they've got to get up and they've got to present, and then they lose it. Interestingly enough, the introverts do better with presentations, if they're prepared anyway. Extroverts do better with off-the-cuff. And then, so that's the specific. Then you get the more generalized social anxiety, which includes presentations or any form of public speaking, but it, there's a whole list. There's something called the Leibovitz Social Anxiety Scale, and you can get it online. It's got 30-odd items, and it'll be things like eating, drinking, um, using a public bathroom, you know, that whole list that I gave before about being on the spot. And if you are in that situation, you can have a panic attack, so that's where that comes in. And then agoraphobia I've already mentioned with the panic, um, but people with social anxiety, it's not quite agoraphobia, but they'll turn down promotions, they'll turn down many things because they don't want to be observed. So it's not quite the agoraphobia of panic, but it looks like it. So I hope that sheds some lights. That certainly does. And then I think let me mention OCD as well while we're at it. Um, OCD is a, a very particular kind of anxiety. And it, there, there was some talk some time ago one of the recent DSMs, it's, it's this book that we use for diagnosis, and they took 
OCD out of the anxiety category and gave it its own because it's so unusual. But there was talk that it's moving back in. And that's for the, the scholars who are listening and the, the people who are pedantic about where it should appear. But basically, it is an anxiety disorder. So again, it is physiological. When your baseline anxiety goes up, so say if generalized is at eight, social phobia is probably in that vicinity. Maybe you can think of 10 as panic. OCD sits at nine. So one in 20 is going to have genes specifically for OCD. Everybody else does the other anxieties, but one in 20 will have OCD. And it's really an interplay between obsessions and compulsions. So the obsessions can be contamination or fear you'll harm somebody or fear that you've done something wrong, you've made a mistake. And it, it, there's a very particular way that it manifests with OCD. It's extreme and it's irrational. And it's something that, that will get your attention. So, for example, a mother who is completely devoted to her children will often manifest with an obsession, what if I kill my children? What if I stab them? Which is frightening. Whereas somebody else who, who isn't really particularly bothered about being a mom, you know those moms who are off doing their own thing, they're not going to have that kind of OCD. Maybe theirs will be something different around symmetry. You know, things must look perfectly a certain way. Or priests often have OCD, or, you know, religious people often have OCD around being blasphemous. You know, what if I say something blasphemous in the middle of church or mass? So OCD is very cruel because it tends to bring a lot of shame. People don't talk about it. And it's always something that is so personal and, and feels so close to your heart that you can't think rationally about it. And one of the key things is that the obsessions are weird and they're extreme and they're intense. And you know they're stupid, but you can't help it. You have to do a compulsion to make them go away. That's how we distinguish OCD from psychosis, because often people think they're going crazy. But if they know it's stupid to think this, but they can't help it, then you know it's OCD. And I'm deliberately saying this because if people are listening, it, it has a lot of shame components and you think you're going crazy. No and no. This is a disorder. It's in the brain. You didn't ask for it. You were born with it. Nothing causes it. It can be switched on by puberty often, but there's no event even as such. It just tends to be a baseline phenomena. So you've got these obsessions. They pop into the brain. They're involuntary. They cause intense anxiety and distress. So who wants to feel that? So then we have a compulsion, and the compulsion will take it away briefly. So say if you have this fear, I'm going to stab my loved one and you then get rid of all the knives, and you give them to somebody else, don't let me near the knives, then there's a compulsion, I must get rid of the knives, or I must tap three times on the door, or I must kiss my children three times, then it'll be okay. It sounds weird, but this is how the brain works, it'll grab anything to try and make this go away. The problem is it's a quick fix, it doesn't last. Within a minute or two, hour or two, the obsession's back, and then the compulsion comes. And then you're in this horrible, vicious cycle. So you can see it. It's a very painful thing to have to live with. And it also comes in episodes. But it's like generalized. It's chronic. It doesn't really ever go away. You just more try to manage it. I said I'd be brief, but once I got into my topic, you just had a quick summary of OCD. I think it really helps if one realizes that this is physiologically based. Yes.
Very much so. Because through the centuries, that was not the way it was seen. No. You, you know, I often think, yeah, this is the analogy that I use, I often think society is so strange how it's decided somehow that anxiety and depression are choice. Who on earth would choose to feel distress like that? Yes, I know some people might be thinking, well, there are manipulative personalities. Sure, I understand that. That's maybe a tiny percentage. But who wants to have these debilitating things? So think of it like this. So nowadays we have these modern cars, and mine certainly has a computer in it that gives me orders all the time. Mm. Put your seatbelt on, do this, do that, and I listen because I'm scared of it. So if we had to think of your body as the vehicle, and the brain is the computer in the vehicle. Now, what, what else are you? You're the driver. Call it soul, call it psyche, call it spirit, whatever you like. But when somebody dies, there's a body and a brain lying there, but there's no driver anymore. So your psyche comes into, or your spirit, or whatever you want to call it, comes into a vehicle. And so there's the brain component of anxiety. So your car and its computer are a certain way. So your genetics are your genetics. And if you've got anxiety in there, it's not bipolar, it's not schizophrenia, it's not cancer. Um, it's not easy, but we can work with anxiety. So one in four is going to have genetics for anxiety. It's common. And you as the driver need to perhaps look at this, that this is a relationship between you, that you can't go it alone. If your car's computer suddenly goes on the blink and tells you the wrong thing, you're going to have a very difficult time driving that vehicle. So therapy is about the driver. You know, how do we help you drive this vehicle? But of course, medication and meditation and exercise, many things like that, can help the vehicle. And if it weren't physiological, none of those things would work, would they? So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's incredibly important. Even if people forget everything else I say today, as long as they remember that, that there definitely is a biological base. It's not because you feel like it. Mm. And it's interesting that you say that it's because of the biological base that medication helps, for yes. instance. But that therapy then is the driver. Yes. Which yeah. Why is that important? Well, you know, the driver and the car have a relationship. So I'm gonna, I love analogies, so forgive me. And many, many, many years ago, I was into motor racing, believe it or not. Don't ask. There's a very old relationship many, many years ago. Anyway, and I, the relationship ended, but my love of motor racing continued. And I was a big Michael Schumacher fan. And I remember so clearly, he won everything in sight many, many, many times. And then he moved to Ferrari. And, you know, you would think, well, what a wonderful combination, Schumacher and a Ferrari, you know, two flamboyant things. But what we maybe don't know is that Ferrari was new to motor racing. They had been obviously on the roads for many years, and um, they were new. It was their first foray into motor racing. So their vehicle was not up to scratch, and they needed a driver like Schumacher, and it took him three years to tweak, tweak, tweak the Ferrari, and then, of course, to continue winning another gazillion championships. So I always think of that when I think of this relationship between driver and vehicle, you know. And the driver can be the most fantastic driver in the world. He was. But the vehicle was not so great. It needed a bit of a tweak. Or you could take somebody else who's maybe a mediocre driver, 
put them in a fantastic vehicle and maybe they'll bring their A-game. So there is this relationship between you and your vehicle all the time. And think of you and your body. When your body operates nicely, it's not sick and it's feeling good and looking good, you feel good. So there, there is this interplay between the two and we need to always remember that. And we have so much intervention possible. You know, why just be with the driver, the computer or the vehicle? We can actually intervene on all three. Lots of research shows how exercise improves depression. Meditation improves depression. So I would say address all three. They're all part of it. Thank you for that analogy. Kalinda, do you see these types of anxiety across age groups? Yes, absolutely. So always remembering the genetic angle. You know, things can kick in from birth or often they kick in at puberty. But even little kids can have anxiety. So the one exception is OCD. You can't really diagnose that below the age of six because all little kids have rituals and little funny things they do. But as for all the others, you can have panic when you're little and you can be that kid who worries about everything. So definitely this is prevalent across all ages. Anxiety, depression, all of these psychological things, they take no prisoners. They basically don't care about your age, who you are, your demographic, how much money you have in the bank, nothing. They can appear with any gender, any age, culturally, race-wise, uh, they appear in everybody. So there's a fairly even spread, although some of the studies show that women have more anxiety and depression, but then others show that men don't come forward. So I'm not so convinced mm. that it's more women than men. Yes, we do have our hormone factors, that is true. I think puberty for a girl is a little more catastrophic than perhaps for a boy. <laughs> so maybe it's a 60-40 split, you know, maybe a little bit more in women than men. But other than that, it's pretty much across the board. Could you tell us how each type of anxiety is diagnosed? Yeah. So each set of these disorders that I've mentioned has got a cluster of symptoms that we look for. So, for example, with generalized anxiety, we've all had little bouts of worry, you know, when something's going on. But if somebody has at least six months of that crippling worry with that whole list of symptoms, assuming the worst, the impact on your functioning, and then those physiological symptoms that come and go. So if you've got six months of that and there's a clear impact, then we would diagnose you as generalized anxiety. Or if you had a once-off panic attack and maybe you knew what it was and then you just let it go and you didn't get this fear of fear cycle, that would just be a panic attack, but it wouldn't be a panic disorder. And with OCD, all of us have little quirks. You know, I like the spice bottles to be <laughs> color-coded and their labels to face forward, for example. Um, I'm a bit chaotic with other things like paper. So, you know, we've all got our little quirks around things we like. But if it's at least an hour a day where you're either doing rituals or you're thinking about them, then we're looking at OCD. If it's less than that per day and it's more sporadic and if you don't get to do your spice bottles in the right order, it's not the end of the world, then it's not necessarily OCD. So we have a list of symptoms we look for and we look at are all the symptoms there or at least three quarters and then we look at the impact and things like intensity you know, that when this happens, is it really impairing your functioning? So it's really just, is it clinical 
or is it just a little thing that just popped up and it's gone again? And who does one go to if you think you would like to know whether you have a diagnosis of, a, of an anxiety disorder? Well, I can tell you where we should go and I can tell you where we do go. Okay. So where we do go is Dr. Google. <laughs> and so if you are going to go to Dr. Google, which I also do, please, please, please go to a good site like the Mayo Clinic or there's one called Very Well Mind and then, of course, sadag.org. So if in doubt, please go there. That's the most important thing because we will go to Dr. Google. And then please find a human and maybe two. So often people end up at the GP. And I think it's incredibly difficult to be a GP because you have to do the physical health, the mental health, relationships, financial advice, the whole lot. So uh, GPs are not necessarily trained in diagnosing. But the way the law stands in this country, they're the ones who can prescribe. And there are very few psychiatrists. I saw a statistic, SADAG did a study, it was one psychiatrist per 100,000 people in this country, very few child psychiatrists even, and there were three psychologists, clinical psychologists, for every 100,000 people. So ideally, you would go to a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, Industrial psychologists aren't really trained in this sort of thing. Educational psychologists, it's really beyond scope, but just the way it is, they've been stepping in more and more because they see it in children. So, you know, what can we do? We don't have people who can diagnose. At least they'll have an idea. And um, this is really what you have. You've got psychologists, social workers, counsellors. There are lots of people. But it should really be a psych or your psychiatrist and then perhaps the GP if they're mentally health-oriented. But as you can see, we take ourselves to Dr. Google because we just don't have resources. I think I should mention at this point that I'll also attach SADAG's link, the link to their website, to this podcast, along with your websites, but we come to that later. Yes. Can you tell us how each type of anxiety can be treated? I know it's a very big field, but... Yeah, yeah. I think I'll just give a summary and then we'll go more into the CBT later. So... In a first prize would be that you know exactly what kind of anxiety you're dealing with because some of them are more chemical than others, or shall we say more biological. So something like OCD, this is 29 years in practice, and I think maybe four times ever I have been able to work with OCD where the person wasn't on meds. It is probably the most biological of all of them. With something like social anxiety, say if you had a beta blocker, it would help so much doing a presentation. So I like a combination. So how do we know what you must do? So first of all, have you got a strong family history? If you do, we know there's a big genetic base. Has it had an early onset, so it's been around a long time? If so, we know that you probably have a strong genetic base and or it's become a pattern. And so we need something chemical just to help shift the brain a little bit and contain it. That's what we'd look at first. And then, of course, we'd look at intensity. If you're not reachable for therapy because you're so acute, you know, you you just can't engage. And because the anxiety is crippling you, then definitely. So those are the situations where we always look at medication. And I know people don't want to be on it. And it's so sad because a lot of that is stigma-based. No one says to a diabetic, well, you have to come off your insulin now. You know, so that's the medication side. And then on the therapy side, there are different kinds of therapy. 
So your person-centered therapy, which is very much supportive, where you get um, to vent, the person is very kind and supportive and empathic, that has its place. Some people really have a desperate need to know why, so they go into the more psychodynamic therapies. But again, I'm not being disparaging. Unfortunately, CBT, I'm sorry to say, for the other therapies, it's the only therapy that's actually proven to work for anxiety and depression and many other things. So first, first prize would be you would get the chemicals sorted out and then be reachable for therapy. You can bring in exercise. That's incredibly helpful on the chemical side as well. You can bring in meditation if you like. And then that's when CBT comes into the mix. So there are a lot of studies where they've proven, probably from the early 2000s, that CBT works at least as well as medication, and in some cases better. And if you put the two of them together, your chance of relapse is tiny. So there was a study done where they took well over a thousand people. They had a, a mixed group of anxiety disorders, and they repeated this with depression the year after. So there were at least a thousand people in each group. There were three groups. And they matched them in terms of family history, age, all the rest of it. Um, obviously, some would be you know, more biologically based than others. And group one got medication. Group two got CBT. And group three got a combination. And once they'd done however many weeks, it was probably about eight weeks, they then redid all the measures to see who was better, who wasn't. And what they found was that two of the groups were identical. And one of the other groups, or the third group, was better, but more than them. Obviously, that was the group that had the best of both. That was the combined CBT medication. But the other two groups were identical. So think about it. You put a pill in, and you have a change. You put CBT in, you have the same change. So it proved that CBT works as well as medication does, but not for everybody. Okay, and they then repeated this for several months and they found that CBT consistently performed equally to the medication and then the combined group that had both outperformed by far. Then what they did was they left it for a year and they then recalled everybody and they looked at who relapsed and who didn't. So the people who were only on the medication, 77% relapsed which is quite frightening. But those were obviously the people who needed it, you know, who were biologically based. The others obviously were okay. Maybe they were just going through a phase. Um, the group that had the combined CBT and medication, only 6% relapsed. And, you know, if you think about anxiety is one in four. So a lot of those people were off the meds, but the CBT was holding because it stuck better because they, they did it when they were on the meds. And then only 17% in the CBT alone relapsed. And they probably were the people who didn't have a strong biological base. So I'm a big fan of CBT, but I'm an even bigger fan of please don't be a hero. If you need to take something chemical, even short term, just to help your brain to manage, for goodness sake, please do. Because I think often we, we just, no, 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 I can't do it. It means I'm weak. It means I'm crazy. But please put those thoughts out of your head. If your car rattles, you take it for a service. If you need the chemicals, you give yourself the chemicals. And then you can put the CBT in there. Thank you. Now we can come to CBT at last. <laughs> My favorite thing? Yes. Could you explain to us what it is, please? 
Okay, I'm going to try and make it very short because, again, I could go on. So it's cognitive behavior therapy, as we said at the beginning. So your cognitions are your thoughts and your core beliefs. And we can think of them as automatic thoughts. And then the behaviors are obviously the side effect of that because how you interpret something is going to make you behave in a certain way. And, of course, the feelings. You know, we always neglect the feelings. So it's called CBT, but certainly we, we don't ignore the feelings, the, the body feelings or the emotion feelings. And as I said earlier, the new therapies, a new form of CBT is called the Unified Protocol, which David Barlow made up in his 80s, which is phenomenal. He's still going strong. And it's where we do a big components on how thoughts and feelings together drive the behaviors. So basically, the cognitive side was made up by Aaron Beck. So before him, there was, if you go back, 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 Pavlov in 1926 was doing behaviorism with the dogs and the conditioning. And then Skinner came along at the same time as Freud. So at the one end, we had the behaviorists who believed stimulus response. At the other end, um, you had the psychodynamic, more Freudian people who believed it's all about inner drives. So uh, they were really far apart. And in the humanists in the middle, Rogers, Maslow, well, what about the person? So these were three very separate ways of being or of doing therapy. And in the late 60s, Aaron Beck, who's the father of modern cognitive therapy, he was an analyst and he was listening to somebody talk. We called them patients in those days. A patient was lying on the couch and talking. And Beck had this aha that maybe it's not all about the unconscious. Maybe there's a layer between conscious and unconscious. And he called it the preconscious. Preconscious. And he said there's a layer here of a dialogue that's going. So as people are listening to us, there's the conscious listening, the unconscious you can't access when you're awake, and the preconscious is thinking, hmm, that sounds familiar, or I don't know about that, or I know someone like that. So you've got this constant dialogue, never, never stops. And Beck was the first in the late 60s to have the aha that this could be used for therapy. And then cognitive therapy was born. So he worked with people with their conscious thoughts, but much more about their pre-conscious thoughts. Because at the end of the day, it's all about your interpretation. And many great philosophers have said that before, that it's, it's not, nothing is good or bad, your thinking makes it so. So, you know, Beck was just plugging into that. But he brought it into therapy. And what he then did was that he developed tools for looking at where do you have cognitive distortions? Say, with anxiety, are you catastrophizing? What are the facts? Let's reality test. Or say, with depression, all or nothing thinking, magnifying what went wrong, minimizing what went right. So this is where cognitive therapy was born. And then later on, people like David Barlow combined the two. So he's the father of CBT for panic. And I had the great privilege of having this conversation with him in one of my postgrad trips to the States. And he just explained it so beautifully. What I explained earlier about panic, that is Barlow's cognitive model of how these things all work together. The cognitions, that there's threat, the feeling of threat physically, and then the interpretation that it's the situation. And this is how all these wonderful techniques were born. So one important thing to know about CBT is that it's research-based completely. So the research focuses on the brain, it looks at behaviors, it tests the technique, 
It tests to see whether it works at least as well as medication. It tests very much to see if it prevents relapse. Because it's all fine and well when you're sitting with me, but can this be sustained when you're not with me? And this is why CBT is very short, 6 to 12 sessions typically for something uncomplicated. And this is where the research gives you a little bit of a guarantee, which I think in the modern world, no one's got time, no one's got money. So that's wonderful. So that's the first big thing about CBT, that it's research-based, and now you know where it came from. And the other thing is that the therapeutic relationship is very different. So we've all seen the movies where you're lying on the couch or maybe you're sitting on the couch and the therapist is sitting over there with their notepad, not saying that much. And that's the typical way that we think therapy happens. Or I have seen one or two representations where it's the more person-centered, the person's being empathic and being very kind, but it typically is more reflecting back at you. You know, how does that make you feel or interpreting, well, this is because that happened with your mother. We always blame the mother somehow. And now that I'm a mom, I take great offense. But anyway, so, so those are the typical kinds of therapies that we are used to. So it, the therapist is kind of in charge, I suppose I can say, and you're either a bug under the microscope or the therapist is being nice and very supportive. And for some people, it's just a chat. Now, where CBT is different is you are 100% equal. So we call it collaborative empiricism. So the client collaborates with the therapist. Which skills are you going to need? What is the presenting problem? Let's work together on figuring how it got there. That just takes a couple of sessions, not months. And where do you want to be? Let's collaborate on goals. Here's an agenda. Are you comfortable with this? Do you think you'll be able to do this? So it's this collaborative process, and it's, it's very chatty. So it's about a 50-50. You're teaching skills. The client is um, giving you information, um, telling you what they think of the skill, getting clarification. So it's a very equal, light relationship. So some people think that CBT therapists work a little harder because we're much more engaged, but I like it. You know, I feel it's collaborative, it's open, it's transparent, um, if somebody asks a question, they get an answer. If I want to know something, I ask. I'm not trying to come in through the back door. And it definitely does address the past, and it is very, very strategic. So some people say that it's, it's very much symptoms. It's not. You deal with a symptom, and then you sort out the cause, which is the core beliefs and certain patterns. So there are quite a lot of differences between CBT and the others. And certainly people leave feeling better. I'm not saying sessions are always fun. You definitely delve into some painful core beliefs, but you do it more collaboratively, and I think that's the key difference for me. So in a nutshell, that's pretty much CBT. How does CBT work? So I've already mentioned the collaboration, so the collaborative empiricism that's research-based, and, and so we harness whatever the client knows about themselves. We're not thinking up all the interpretations. So that's one way in which it works, that there are two brains involved. And it's very much skill-based. So we, we identify what it is that the person needs. So we begin with psychoeducation. So what I said earlier about all of the disorders, we do that but in much more detail. And we tailor it to the person. That this is how your panic started. And this is how your agoraphobia is working. 
or we explain about, say, the OCD, that there's the shame attached, which is why you thought you were a bad person. But actually, look, this is how it works. Or somebody with social phobia, that this is in your frontal lobes. This is something biological. This is why you have a panic attack when you have to present. Or this is why you feel awkward to eat in front of others, for example. So we always do a lot of psychoeducation. Um, on generalized, we look at what is good worry and what is not good worry, and when is it functioning for you and when is it functioning against you. Or say for emotion regulation, you know, this is when it's healthy anger, you can channel that energy, this is when it's explosive or you imploding. So there's a lot of psychoeducation in the beginning because we want to be on the same page. We want them to know as much as possible so that they have this level of understanding. And then the techniques go into a fertile ground. Once that's done, we start to look at the relationships. So we give them a monitor, and you would really have an awareness phase in the therapy. Right, we're going to monitor your thoughts, your feelings, be they body or emotion, and your behaviors. And we're going to look at the dysfunctional ones. Then we're going to look at, so say for example, you get triggered and you're in some situation and you start to feel very anxious or very angry or very depressed or insecure, because we can work with all of that. And what is the thought that is driving that feeling and what is the behavior that you do as a result? So we look at the relationships between all of those. Does the client have to figure this out themselves? No. So in the session, when we've done the psychoeducation, we've got the goals and we've got the buy-in and we've done the pros and cons of changing or not, then we start with the awareness. So normally we would draw them a, a diagram of the relationship between the thoughts, the feelings and the behaviors. And there are different ways to do it. And then they would go away and they would monitor this for a week. And sometimes they, they feel, I'll never be able to do this. But they always come back with something. And it's a lovely starting point because we want them to see their themes. And then off that, we would choose, okay, what are we going to start with? If there's a very dysfunctional behavior, we might need to start there. And then we start to behavior modify. And then they will take that away as their homework. Or exposures would come in there if you had a phobia, say. Um, but often I will start with the feelings and the thoughts. And I typically will start with the feelings you know, how do we help you to tolerate intense feelings? And there are many different techniques for that. And then once that's done, and the person feels a little bit more together, and often if the meds is kicked in, the feeling is a bit better, then we just always check, are there any behaviors we must address, harmful, self-harm, anything like that? And if that's okay, then we go to the thoughts. Then what we do is we make a list. Okay, these are the, the trends that I'm seeing there's a perfectionism one, or there's a catastrophizing, if it's anxiety, or with depression, you, you're being really disparaging to yourself. Let's look at that cognitive distortion, that you're all bad. And so then we would get into the thoughts, the automatic thoughts, and then the core beliefs. So it, it's, it's lovely, because there are protocols for each of these. And the therapist's skill comes in in knowing which protocol to use, and not too much and not too little. They don't need to know everything we know. You, you know, when you take your car to the mechanic, they can explain or not, and they're not going to explain the entire engine, but they're going to give you the information you need. Or you go to your doctor, you've got flu. You know, they explain what you need. So it's very much a dance 
between you, the client, and the techniques and the skills and the monitors. That sounds exciting to be on the giving end of that, mm. like you are. Mm, very much so. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's such a gratifying feeling when you can pass something on. And it's not me who's so smart. It's the Becks and the Barlows and all the rest. And I've, I've got the best job in the world because I get to learn every day. So I just naturally monitor my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So I'm much more pleasant to be around, I'm sure. <laughs> How does CBT empower the recipients? Well, I think you can see the thread you know, through what we've been saying. So the relationship is collaborative. So you're not terrified before your therapy session. Um, a lot of people feel very anxious before they go to the more traditional ones because it's almost like being a bug under a microscope. And I was trained in that, and it has its place. But it's all about the past, what went wrong. It's quite painful. So you feel really horrible for quite a long time. So CBT is not like that. We always make sure somebody's put together at the end. And also, the person is involved. You know, imagine going to the dentist, and they just do stuff, and they don't warn you what's going to happen, and they do horrible things, and then you leave. It would be much nicer if you could have a discussion, which is, this is why we're doing this procedure, this is how we do it, you can expect this, you can expect that. So I think the collaboration definitely feels better. People leave feeling like they're part of the process. Of course, I'm biased, but I think that's one factor. The other one is that you're learning stuff. You know, I'm teaching you a skill. I'm not demonstrating it and then you must try and figure it out. I'm teaching you and I'm coaching you so that you don't need me. And that's very empowering. And it, it just feels right to me to be doing something like that. You know, there's so few therapists out there. So why not pass it on if you can? And then you help the next one and so you go. And people often will pass it on to their family, their friends, their kids. So why not give somebody a head start on skills early in life? Do you use CBT for individuals as well as groups? Yes, definitely. So CBT can be used for either. And so think of something like social phobia. So if you're scared of doing public speaking, you need to have an audience. So what I would typically do there in the group would be to mix the group. So there'll be the extroverts who come in and have these wonderful social skills and then they fall apart when it comes to doing the presentation. And that's very empowering for the introverts to realize, well, I'm not so bad. You know, often they can do the presentations. Um, and of course, if you on, on one level, you know, everybody in the room has got the same social anxiety that manifests differently. It's very empowering and very supportive. And we do CBT for bipolar, for example, where families can share. You know, these are some ways of, of how we've figured out how to monitor is this a manic episode or just a good mood? Um, the one exception would be with depression. You try not to have a group of just depressed people because that can be very challenging. So you try to mix in people maybe who've recovered from depression, um, who may be more running a support group, or people who are early in the depression, uh, but not people who are profoundly depressed, all of them in one group. That's not going to go very well. And sometimes we're mixing things like maybe a bit of bipolar or some anxiety just to, to shake up the depression. And um, Panic, there hasn't been a lot of group therapy in South Africa. Myself and a colleague are starting, hopefully soon, for panic and OCD. And definitely for OCD, group therapy is very good. 
there's something called the OCD project that they've done in the US and in the UK where you have an OCD house so people come for two weeks and your OCD is not the next person's so maybe you can't pick up that particular thing because it, it, it scares you but maybe you can do something else which scares the next one and then that's how they help each other with that kind of support so in group therapy the group is the, the extra therapist because the group contains and holds and does a lot of the work so it depends on you know who the, the mix is that you can get together and um, I think people often worry about stigma so they don't want to go into a group but social anxiety works incredibly well in groups so watch the space we'll be mm. letting you know if we do it for panic and OCD in 2013 you launched the first CBT self-help site in South Africa and uh, it's still there with selection of online self-help solutions. Could you tell us about that? With pleasure. It's called thoughtsfirst.com. Of course, thoughts come before your feelings and your behaviours. That's why I called it that. And it, it's very much a free resource. There are one or two paid ones. I suppose something has to maintain the site. And people have been asking me to make courses so that they can be a bit more hand-holding. And I'm busy working on one for generalized anxiety at the moment. So that should be up in the next month or so. And um, basically what it is, as I said earlier, there's so few people who actually can access therapy. You know, what if you're living somewhere far away? And before COVID, it was actually not legal to do online therapy, but it wasn't illegal. So the HPCSA just didn't have a policy, and I've been trying for years. So obviously you must help people. So we kind of got away with it like that. And now online therapy is absolutely above board, which is great. So I think that's changed the game a little bit. But in 2013, there wasn't access. And if you think there are few psychologists, there are even fewer who do CBT. So CBT did become a bit of a fashion. I think a lot of the medical aides were driving that because it's proven. And obviously they want results for just a few sessions. I understand that. And unfortunately, there were people running around, and I guess it's human nature, who were doing an online course here or there, or um, maybe reading it out of a book, CBT for Dummies, which is a very good book, and then professing that they were CBT therapists. And I'm really not against anybody learning. We should all be empowering. But people made horrible mistakes. I had a situation where somebody decided a client had had panic, while driving late one night on the highway. Um, she almost hit a truck. She had her child in the back of the car and she had a panic attack when she realized she could have killed both of them. Now that wasn't panic disorder. It, it was completely misdiagnosed and somebody then started to do exposures in the first session. That was post-traumatic stress disorder and then panic attached to that. And you never do exposure lightly, never, never. So this particular therapist, who sadly had done an, a weekend course on CBT, had decided to do exposures in the first session and then fired the client and said, well, you put me at risk. Because on the highway, when they, they came to the point where she'd almost hit the truck, she slammed on brakes. Of course she did. She had post-traumatic stress disorder. So, and, the, and the therapist was in the car. Yes. Yeah. And, and this was totally totally how not to do exposures for phobias panic anything so um cbt can go horribly wrong if you're not very well trained 
And it's not that it's elitist. It's just, you know, you wouldn't go to a heart surgeon who'd done an online course on your procedure. So please, please, please be fussy, everybody out there. Take that power into your own hands. So things have moved since then. So Thoughts First is still the only CBT self-help site in South Africa, to my knowledge. But there are a lot more properly trained CBT therapists, probably in the last five years. And they tend to be clustered in Joburg, um, there are a few in KZN, there are a few in Pretoria, and then there are one or two in Cape Town, but not so many floating around. And, you know, if you're going to go and see somebody, ask, what's the experience with this particular thing that you want help with, etc.? Is it something they are very familiar with? So where did thoughts first come in? So I tried to take the self-help stuff, the stuff that people like the most, and she puts that into small user-friendly documents that people can just download. And that's really what it's always going to be. There's always going to be free stuff, and there's always going to be something for generalized, always going to be something for panic. There's one of my best techniques for social anxiety on there. And I've thrown in one of my favorites for stress, and there's one for sleep. Um, there's some relaxations, there's a guided meditation, there's a deep relaxation, so those are all available on there. And as I said, I'm going to put some courses on because people who can't access CBT have just said, well, wouldn't it be more time and cost effective if I did maybe a video course, you know, just to help hold hand and talk people through and with panic train them in how to go and do the exposures. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. It's fascinating and helpful. I think so. Now we're getting to your book. Yes. You wrote a book called Get the Balance Right, Coping Strategies for Working Mums, which you recently updated and republished. Now, yes. can you tell us how the book came about in the first place? Okay, so the first book came out in 2005, and my twins were born in 2003. So it was a bit of a shock to the system, and I was superwoman in those days, I'll admit. So, you know, they had a traveling dad who was gone every two weeks and I just carried on with my eldest child the practice and then the twins and you know if you think about it in hindsight what on earth was I imagining would happen they were high-risk pregnancy they were in ICU so they were all the risk factors and they were born prem and um, so they were in the neonates for some time then they came home and everything was good and I went back to work because it, it just anchored me and I love what I do so I thought everything was okay, and I educated my entire family around postnatal depression, you know, that I've got all the risk factors, so just look and make sure. And of course, because of what I do, I was 10 years into practice then, I didn't get postnatal depression, I got a tumor instead. Oh dear. So when the twins were one, I thought it was just your stomach doesn't go back to how it should look, but it was actually an ovarian tumor, this huge thing, and it, it's a silent killer because it gives you no symptoms. And it was really just for about six weeks that I felt very uncomfortable and I couldn't eat very much. And I was losing weight. People were telling me I looked very thin, but on the scale I was the same. And I've always been the same weight my whole life. And I thought they were talking rubbish. Anyway, long story short, took myself off to the doctor. He did a scan. He freaked out, sent me to a specialist. A week later, I had this massive operation and this great big thing like a mango was removed. So I've never taken leave for six weeks at a time, but I was manned on. And I had to learn to accept help. People came. My family were great. You know, everybody was lovely and very supportive. 
And while I was lying in my bed, I thought, how on earth did this happen? You know, this is ridiculous. And I started doodling on a piece of paper. And in the book, there's a model of a little figure juggling these balls. And I'm just very logical, and I put these things into categories. So one category is the self-ball, which is your health, your spiritual, your emotional, your mental. Another one is work, which of course overrides. And that is not just your work work, it's the work in the home. I never realized kids were such a lot of work. You know, you just want to pop out and there's this enormous bag and you've got to get the pram into the boot and I'm in a station wagon because it's a twin pram and I've got to park this. So there was all this extra work that working moms know all about and all these new things that you have to get your head around. And then the third ball is relationships. You thought it was just you, the dad, and the kids, but no. There'll be advice from everybody and his dog. There'll be people you never knew you had to know, like the nurse who does the immunizations and your ped and your GP and the, the place where you go and do moms and tots. So all these new relationships, their new mothers and their children and childcare. So that's a big ball. And um, within that, somewhere, there's your relationship with your friends, maybe, your partner, maybe. And then, of course, the social ball, which just falls off the bus. And so these are the four balls that I thought, okay, this is what working moms juggle. And I did this diagram, and then I thought, well, I know how to work with this, with CBT. And I did some research, and I took a lot of skills and had a lot of conversations with people across a few months. So this was in 2004. And then I started writing up. And then I was chatting to Anne Richardson, who wrote Baby Sense, and we just got into a discussion around her publisher, who is the most wonderful woman, Vilsia Metz. She's now retired. And um, she and I got together, and that was that. A few weeks later, there was the first draft, and Vilsia nursed it and pruned it, and eventually got it to the right place. And that was 2005. And when I read the book recently, I thought, gosh, I'm still talking about cassette tapes. Nobody knows what that is. And working from home, that wasn't there. So I updated the whole book. And so now it looks completely different in places. I'd say it's about 80% of what it was, but I've tweaked it and enhanced it and added a whole lot of extra goodies. So um, you can get it on Amazon or you can get it on my Thoughts First website. Uh, everyone's on eBooks these days, so I put it on Amazon too. And you'll see there are extra chapters. I've split them. There's one on guilt. It's got like much more coverage now. And there's another one on anxiety. So I've just added that. There's one on working from home. And that's got its own whole section on how do you do that. And within it is the hybrid workplace. And certainly the references are much more modern now. So I'm hoping it's going to stand the test of time in some ways and that people will appreciate the updates in others. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to rereading the book because that's how I met you in the first place. And you said that was in 2005. 2005. Oh, <laughs> Long time and ago. And here we are with the babies, 18, going off to university. Yes. yes. Kalinda, where can listeners find more information on your work? I would say if you want to know a little bit about me or CBT, go to my website, kalindalinda.com. And it, it's an interesting spelling, so it's Kalinda with an A and Linda with an E. Just type it in, don't worry, Google knows all the permutations, it'll take you to my website. 
and it's got a section on CBT there as well and which kind of therapy is right for you because maybe you want to look at the person-centered and the psychodynamic as well. And then for all the, the other goodies, you can go to thoughtsfirst.com and you'll find all of that. And then there is a little profile on SADAG, on their website, sadag.org. And there's a video, there are two or three in the front. And I think there's one of mine on panic there. So if you want to see it and get some practical self-help for panic, you can look there as well. Right. And I'll attach all these links to the podcast. Lovely. Thank you. Now we've come to your three best tips for any anxiety. Okay, so when I was thinking about tips, I thought the anxiety sounds so different from what I've described. So how on earth will I come up with three tips that are practical and that are useful? So these are my three that work for all three or for all the types of anxiety. So the first one is we always focus on why. You know, why is this happening? Why do I have this? Why do I think like this? Why am I built like this? So I would like, number one, to say it doesn't matter why. So if there is a being out there who's running the show, that being dealt the cards, whatever you call that person, if there is no being running the show. Something else dealt the cards, the law of karma or something. It wasn't you, okay? So please remove your mind from the why, and you've got these cards, and focus on playing the cards in hand. So that's my first tip with anxiety, because we love to go into the why. Why, why, why? So you've got the cards, play the cards. That's number one. The second one is, I love this quote, so there's a man called Shantideva. He was a 17th century Indian master. And he, he really was very blunt about many things. But he said this thing, which I've extrapolated to anxiety. He said, if a problem can be solved, there's no need to worry. If a problem cannot be solved, there is no need to worry. I love that. I use that for a lot of things. So that's my second one. And it works particularly well for anxiety. And then the third one is fact is not feeling. So often think of social phobia. You're really anxious before you're going to go and do the presentation or go to this function. And because you feel horrible, you then decide that that's evidence that, yes, it is a bad situation. Or you're in a situation where you feel a little bit anxious, and that becomes evidence that I feel bad, therefore I'm coming across badly. But fact is not feeling. So that's my third tip. Always separate them out. Thank you. I think I have to think of these three every day. <laughs> I use them myself a lot. And now for your fun question, which is a very simple one. Mm -hmm. If you could be a musical instrument, which one would you be? I know exactly which one. Okay. Um, I'll have to look up what it's called and maybe you can look it up and put it in. There was a particular series called Marco Polo, and on it there, there's a particular instrument. Actually, you know it. Can we pause? Can I look it up? Yes, certainly. I want to get the name. I've just looked it up. You very kindly let me quickly go to Dr. Google. So it's called the ERU, E-R-H-U. 
and it's a two-stringed instrument that originates in China. So if you haven't listened to this theme, it's the theme to the series called Marco Polo, and it is all about Genghis Khan and fascinating. But it, it is beautiful. It steals the mind. It's the most magnificent melody. And um, I think everybody's going to go and Google it now, but that's the instrument I would be. I'm not really sure why. Maybe because it's got depth, it's soulful, it, it's just beautiful. And it, it just reminded me of good feelings, really, and a series that I really loved. And I've listened to many other tracks like that. And there's a logic in there and there's an order and a symmetry, but it's beautiful. So I think it just has everything. That's what I would be, to be able to make music like that. Thank you, Kalidra. And thank you for unpacking this sensitive topic for us. I, I really have a much better understanding and I hope the listeners do. I think you can see why I say it's my favorite thing. Yes. And I'm hoping that I've shifted somebody's perception and also just made it clear that we understand it. You know, it can be changed. You know, on one of my websites, I think it's Thoughts First, I say, um, learn, unlearn, relearn. And Alvin Toffler said this, that the real illiterates of the 21st century will not be those who can't read or write, but those who can't learn, unlearn, relearn. So there's a lot of anxiety that's learned, and you can definitely learn how to unlearn that. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you'd rate Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in improving your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, marietsneeman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mark Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 